0: Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Pia ribello Brito, an associate research scientist at the Yale Child Study Center. Professor Britto is known nationally for her work on young children's literacy and social and identity development of Muslim Arab children, as well as internationally for her scientific commitment to cross-cultural issues evidence-based national policy development and early learning standards for young children. Her primary expertise is in the role of socio-cultural factors in child development and early childhood policies and programs in the developing world. Today, we'll talk with her about early childhood development and policy in a global context. Welcome, Professor Brito. Thank you for having me. You've recently written a paper on child development focusing particularly on child rights and policy implications. Please give us an overview.
1: I'd love to. Um, The goal of this paper really is to bring the evidence on contexts, the most intimate contexts and situations in which young children grow and develop in the developing world. And then use a rights-based perspective or a rights-based lens to understand that context so we can inform national level policies to improve these conditions, improve these circumstances. And so um, uh, this is sort of this culminates a series of papers that was put together by a collaborative study team that consists of academic partners, non-academic partners, um, NICHT, we had um, UNICEF, we had a, a study team that came together to very critically examine these, home environment context, to look at child rearing practices, um, to look at caregiving, um, to look at the degree to which children are exposed to violence, abuse, neglect, and then with a very nuanced and detailed understanding of that, which we know is one of the most important influences on a growing child, and then take a rights-based perspective and see what can we do to really enhance the situation of children. Um, rights-based tools, um, like the Human Rights Convention, we mm-hmm. have uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is a very powerful tool. And um, I'm not sure if you know, Marilyn, it's the most widely signed and ratified human rights treaty. I did not know that. So every country other than Somalia and the United States interesting, has signed and ratified it. So it's a very powerful tool. It's universally endorsed. That means as a world community, we recognize the importance of children, and we understand and we we believe in those principles. But it's not used that frequently to really mobilize policy. It's not used that frequently to move issues forward. So we wanted to take the data and use a rights-based lens to try and speak with countries to see how they
0: could improve conditions for children. Okay, I have to ask, why yes. do you think the United States has not signed this?
1: No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because oh. they don't think there's a problem in this country or uh, I, I'm not, it seems <laughs> remarkable to me.
1: Yes, and um, you are not the only person to sort of be astounded astounded by, by this fact. There are multiple reasons. Okay. There are multiple reasons why the United States has not signed it. The one that's probably the clearest to, to explain is the fact that the US Constitution is supreme.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and our Constitution doesn't allow other international laws to superimpose its articles, its jurisdictions upon us. And therefore, for that reason, the United States has chosen not to be a signatory on the convention. Okay. Um, but then there are multiple other reasons which we could go into or save for a later discussion. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: um, well, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about the methodology that you used um, for the paper. I know you used a particular survey that is um, very important and um, innovative and unique, so let's talk about that a little bit. Yes,
1: um, it's it's very interesting. So let me, before, before telling you about the methodology, give you another startling fact. Okay. Um, 90% of the world's children live in the majority world or the developing world. Mm-hmm. It's 10% that live in the Western world. The flip side of it is 90% of the literature mm-hmm. or the information, the knowledge base, the developmental science comes from this 10% of children. So what we know and say today is really based on 10% of the world's children. The 600 million who are living everywhere else in the world, we know very little about. Mm -hmm. So having said that, what we really need to do is understand what is going on in the lives of these children. What's going on with breastfeeding? What's going on with nutrition? What's going on when mothers are talking to children? We have to have cogent evidence around this. And the MIX survey, the Multi-Indicator Cluster Survey, is really what we used. It's one of the largest household surveys globally. And it came out of a declaration, what was called the World Fit for Children Declaration. Mm -hmm. And it's sponsored by UNICEF. It's implemented around the world. And the beauty of this is um, in the most recent, so it's been going through multiple waves. The most recent wave was conducted in 2005. They included a lot of questions about this immediate and most influential context for children under five. We were able to use that data. And I think the very unique aspect of our paper was to take the principles of children's rights to survive, develop, be protected, and participate, and take that lens and look at the data and say and see what is going on. Are we really upholding children's rights? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of what we were able to bring to this paper.
0: Okay, the survey seems enormous to me. I mean, yes. how many countries were polled or taken into consideration, or took part in the survey, and how actually was it administered? Um, so the survey itself is grand and huge, as you say,
1: and it's and it's um, it's a very very complicated. Um, it's so so very briefly to be completely simple about it is countries agree with UNICEF to administer and implement the survey. Mm-hmm. The sampling for which is multi-layered in such that fairly representative households are sampled in a country. There are multiple modules um, that look at health, nutrition, education, economic status, um, and, th- and countries can elect which modules or questions they select mm-hmm. from that. And then through a national process of vetting the data and analysis, countries release reports on how well they're doing by their children. Our study was one, one micro sample of it. It was okay. 28 countries with a particular emphasis on early childhood. Um, the UNICEF website has a lot of information on the mixed survey, on the methodology, mm-hmm. um, and the details of this, which um, in some ways is, is fascinating because we're really getting a nuanced look at children finally than just sort of broad statistics of GDPs and, you know, mortality indices and, mm-hmm. and education. indices.
0: So what were some of your findings based on the, the research? Um, the findings, w- so we had a sample of
1: 28 countries um, that we looked at and in the study, and we sort of had them, um, for, the, for the ease of categorization, we sort of looked at um, high human development index, middle human development index, and low human development index countries. And um, I think what was very interesting was that, um, so on average, we found, for example, only one fourth of the mothers said they had breastfed their children the previous day, children younger than six months of age.
0: Due to lack of food or they purchased?
1: So when a child is younger than six months of age, the WHO standards are exclusive breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Another remarkable statistic was only one third of the mothers had told, read a story to a child, told a story to a child in the past week. Mm -hmm. Now, I do want to put in a caveat here is that the means or the average belies the huge distribution and range. Mm -hmm. So the range in the answers we got across the countries was enormous. So in some ways, you can't just peg it to the mean. But that being said, the uppermost range of many of the responses we got was still lower than what is required for sort of, or what what should be in place for optimal development, Mm -hmm. what we know children need, what we know is a nurturing and a stimulating environment. So we know there is a lot to be done. We know that if we're not upholding the basic development rights of children, there is a lot we should be doing. And that was very helpful information um, that we got, very hard information we got from these surveys, and we were able to marry it with a rights perspective.
0: Okay, and, and what are some of the recommendations in terms of the evidence that you found, and and what countries can be doing. Um,
1: in so terms what of we did is then we took the recommend we took the data and and we started looking at implications of it for how could you let's say enhance breastfeeding and exclusive breastfeeding practices. What does the literature tell us mm-hmm. in terms of group counseling, in terms of service abil- availability? We looked at the data and said how could we encourage parents maybe to spend more time engaging with their children. Um, and what are some successful program models out there that have done this?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so we sort of tried, we contoured the recommendations to moving in, in that direction.
0: I know you've spent a lot of time in Laos. Yes. And um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that experience, your work there and the scientific based evidence um, that you came up with and how that can inform policy. Yeah, I I, I was very fortunate to work in Laos, it's
1: a beautiful country, it's just just beautiful. It's Southeast Asia, Um, it's unfortunately though um, a landlocked country, Mm -hmm. um, it sort of ranks very low in economic development, it's mired by, by, you know, disturbing statistics with respect to children, infant mortality, um, access to healthcare, access to education. But it's a country with a lot of promise and it's a country that's really interested in moving out of these ranks. And so they have elected to invest in human capital, Mm -hmm. really build the citizenry. And as scientific evidence, we know building human capital starts in the earliest years. Mm -hmm. Neurobiological data tells us about brain development. Economic data tells us about the return on investment in early programming. So we have multiple bodies of evidence, of knowledge, of scientific inquiry that tell us building human capital starts in the early years. So Laos has really decided to move along in that direction. And our role um, and and part of of the university was really to work as an evidence-based partner in this process. the country led the process. It was a national development. It was led by the key ministries: health, education, mm-hmm. social welfare, justice, who really are pushing programs for children. It was very much in response to what are the national needs and priorities for young children. And the goal was to build a sustainable policy. And this is a huge part of what we bring to the table um, as part of sort of sustainability, is the evidence that we know is going to sustain the policy. Oftentimes the, the people, you know, you often hear this rhetoric, oh, they have great policies, but in implementation it falls apart. Mm-hmm. It falls apart because there isn't capacity sustainability, there isn't financial sustainability, there isn't co- social sustainability, the community doesn't own it. So what we bring to this process is how do you build that sustainability? on the different pieces of evidence. Mm -hmm. So if the governance model of the policy isn't strong, when it goes from national to district to provincial, it's going to fall apart. So what is the evidence to build sustainability? If we don't have enough resources allocated to this policy and distributed correctly to the programs, it's not going to be financially sustainable or viable. We bring evidence in terms of knowing how financing policies work. So that's sort of what we bring to the dialogue. And then there is a great participation that occurs with all the key stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And we've taken a lot of Yale students Mm -hmm. to this process, um, as you know. And um, the other piece of this work that I want to talk about is it's been a phenomenal training experience for Yale students. And I'm sure and I often sort of use this example you know I often say you cannot learn to be a physician by just studying anatomy textbooks you have to be interacting with patients mm-hmm. you have to be res- you have to do a residency you have to do the training it's the same thing with policy you cannot learn policy in a classroom you've got to be in the policy arena you've got to be interacting with policymakers you've got to understand how ideology institutional capacity, information, how do all of this interplay when you are trying to get something strong on the table to move forward an agenda? So we, um, I often take a group of students with me, um, and I've been very fortunate, the university's been very supportive of this and helped uh, fund the students' travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to participate in these policy deliberations, interact with policymakers and learn the process. Mm-hmm. Learn how do you engage in an evidence-based conversation such that you're going to get to the goals, the objectives, the targets you want.
0: And I understand in your work in Laos that you actually did help create policy that has been implemented in that. So can you tell us, uh, give us a few examples of, of some of the things that have been implemented there? Yes, yeah, so um, so what has been very interesting
1: in, in Laos is when, when we first started working there, it was something very simple like, there wasn't even a mapping of the different services that exist for children um, and getting a sense of where to move forward. So mm-hmm. just a, a basic situational analysis of what's going on, what are the services, who are the key stakeholders involved, what are the indicators for children, in what dimensions are programs lacking some degree of quality and substance was not there? So what has been very useful, so that was a basic piece of it. The second part of this that was very useful was, um, it was sort of a, a, a historical precedent was set in the country that they had so many key ministries come together at the same table to discuss an area of common interest. Mm-hmm. So typically, you know, the health sector works individually and the education sector works indi- individually. This was a policy that brought together government non-government development partners but not just at a central level there was also sort of a a vertical level of contribution with provincial partners there district level partners there so in terms of the process this was a very unique conversation Mm -hmm. that had occurred and, and it was sort of remarked on and used as a model for other policies that are being developed the next piece of this um that has actually been very fabulous is the country now is developing a very detailed plan of action. So the policy is sort of the broad statement of where the country wants to go in terms of improving um, children's lives, in terms of getting to healthy citizenry. Mm -hmm. The country now has decided that they want a detailed plan that breaks it up year by year, step by step, with accountabilities, with roles, responsibilities, with funds being allocated to expansion of kindergarten programs expansion of community-based programs, um, um, scaling up of immunization programs. So we're seeing many different directions in which now there are detailed steps being outlined to move this forward.
0: Wonderful. In terms, let's go back to the global policy. I'm yes. very curious to know. So there's a global policy, but there's so many countries at, uh, in the developing world of. At different levels yes. of development. How does that work to have a global policy and then implement it at the national level? Um, so there isn't one, I, th- I guess I should start by saying there isn't one
1: global policy. Okay. Um, and with respect to young children really, who we're talking about is children prenatally to about eight years of age. Mm-hmm. And we're not just talking about the growing child, we're talking about the context around the child, the services that the child receives, the, the programs and provisions that enhance the development of human potential. So in order to achieve that, there isn't one global policy. There's sort of two big drivers there, the conventions, the human rights conventions, mm-hmm. like the Convention on the Rights of Child, um, the ILO conventions on uh, prevention against child labor, you know, okay. those conventions. And then there are the declarations. Uh, the declarations, are the MDGs are the most well-known, the Millennium Development Goals, okay. uh, the Education for All Goals, the Health for All Goals, these declarations. So typically countries contour their national policies oftentimes to fit these international targets. Okay. So where early childhood fits in is that it gets piecemeal attention. You know, if there is a declaration and a goal around it, like the big goal is universal primary education. The MDGs talk about it. The Education for All goal talk about it. So you see a huge push across the board, national level, country, national level policies to promote universal enrollment in primary school. Uh, in fact, uh, on average, a ministry of education spends fifty percent of its budget on primary education. Mm-hmm. So you see this sort of an attention to early childhood. There isn't there isn't sort of a an across the board cohesive attention. Okay. And this is something that I think a lot of (coughs) us are are thinking about seriously and considering. And in fact, I'm just back from a a meeting we had in Bellagio at the Rockefeller uh, Foundation Center Mm -hmm. that was proposed uh, by myself and some of my colleagues to look at the state of evidence on early childhood with respect to can we really come up with a framework to inform these international drivers international drivers that push national policies in a way that children get this cohesive attention. So we're not sort of getting these children with a head and no neck and shoulders and mm-hmm. no drift, you drift. Know. We're really getting the full child. Sure. Um, and this was a very interesting meeting. We had global scholars from 24 countries really talking about the state of the art evidence and what can we put together to talk to these big declarations to see if there's a greater inclusion And
0: and what came out of the meeting?
1: What came out of the meeting was a a very interesting structure of how we should be thinking about the evidence Mm -hmm. from the different sectors that address kids' health, education, legal systems, justice, but also looking at the evidence from faith-based organizations, um, NGOs, uh, private sector, and how can we put these together to really understand what is the strongest provisions for children, And how are we, in some ways, maybe not attentive to a fullest potential if we cut up the work in this multiple ways? So we have a a ways to go, but this group sort of came together and thinking together this framework. And over the next couple of months, actually, by next year, we should have a pretty authoritative volume out on this that we can use for a high-level launch and... Mm-hmm. And, and get the
0: attention of the Excellent. big policy. Excellent. So what do you think is the most important thing that needs to happen to help child rights and policy? Um, that's There are multiple parts to this
1: answer, I think, just because early childhood development is very complex mm-hmm. in that it really brings together multiple sectors and agencies who are working towards children's development mm-hmm. and sort of the economic development of a country. Um, so for the most, I would sort of say there are pieces to this that come together in an interesting tapestry, mm-hmm. um, but there, there isn't sort of a linear arrangement around it. Um, in, in my experience and in sort of working with now of 40 odd countries around the world with governments, national governments on improving conditions for young children, Um, One piece I I find that is quite remarkable is um, oftentimes parents or key caregivers in the family are are not aware of the importance of these early years, Mm -hmm. and that learning does begin at birth, and that everything we do with young children enhances their capacity and their ability and their potential. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a universal recognition of wanting your children to be healthy, to be happy. I mean, I've, I've done focus groups in remote, at, with remote populations in Laos. I've done focus groups in families and sort of very educated in Singapore. And mm-hmm. they'll all, you would ask them, what do you want for your children? And they all say, we want healthy children. We want our children to be happy, to be successful. But once you start going back and saying, how do you think this happens? And what could you do? That's when we notice there is a knowledge gap.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's really what, we need to work on. I think if somehow there was ways, there, and there are ways to really get the word out mm-hmm. about the importance of the early years, about immunization, about health, about breastfeeding, families will start demanding that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And once families, communities, public will builds to demand from the government, and we see what demand can do recently, we are mm-hmm. seeing a lot of changes. Sure, yes. Once A population starts demanding what they need we will see service provision change Mm -hmm. we will see policies responsive to that but education really is the first step is the first step and there is a very key link between particularly maternal education maternal understanding Mm -hmm. and and child well-being another big piece to this is the capacity to deliver programs Mm -hmm. to deliver these services in most countries the problem with scaling up is there are not sufficient trained individuals to actually take it forward. Right. And so the quality of the work and the effectiveness of the program starts dropping. Mm-hmm. And if we had systems to actually enhance capacity, to build training models, we could reach a large number of population, families, children, who we are not reaching now. Right. And the, the advantage to all of this is we have technology no longer are we bound into classrooms. Mm-hmm. The walls have exploded, have expanded, and through technology, there are multiple ways we can really build, build capacity. And finally, I think we need stronger arguments that really link this investment in the early years and economic development of countries. Mm-hmm. We have it. We have the data that shows the return on investing in early programs gives you a high return and a high re- reward. What is missing is that for the most part, governments are not going to wait 20 years for that to mature. Mm-hmm. You know, you want more immediate gold. You want an immediate return. You want a short-term return. Mm-hmm. That needs to be strengthened for there to be a greater buy-in and an investment and interest in this work. And I think if all these start coming together, we are going to see the landscape change. Because right now, The very sad story is, I would say, one-third of young children under five years of age is not achieving their full potential. And we start multiplying that into a loss of human
0: potential around the world. very sad. That is pretty startling. Well, you're doing wonderful work. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing some of your research. Thank you. For more information about Professor Brito and her work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale. Thank you.